Every knee shall bow to him. That's fantastic. But let's look at the other side of the picture. Let's go back, what, 1,990 years perhaps this year uh, to when Jesus was starting to feel really alien. We're going to read from Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. What it says is this. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead. They went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever I go. Jesus replied, foxes have no holes, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, you, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We'll have a look at that passage, which is a background to what we're saying this morning, in a minute. Um, and uh, unless Seth would like to come and preach. No, no. But uh, just to start with, here are two men I would contrast. This is Alexei Navalny. Russian dissident, who, as you know, is, is uh, one of the thorns in the side of President Putin. And uh, you may remember that just three weeks ago, on August the 4th, he was given an extra 19 years in jail on trumped-up charges, which means he'll spend the next three decades of his life in prison. Now, Navalny's been a critic of Putin for many, many years, and uh, he staggered everybody when he was last in court in 2021. Here he is in the cage in the courtroom, by quoting from the Gospels from Matthew chapter 5, and set telling everybody, I have become a Christian. I was an atheist when I started this protest uh, campaign, but I found that I need someone to rely on in my life that's bigger than me. And through my years in prison, I've come to faith of Jesus Christ. That's been a remarkable turnaround, which hasn't pleased all of his supporters, but has made people think a little bit. Sadly, this is the other guy. This is Jerry Falwell Jr., who's a president, or was until 2021, the president of Liberty University, founded by his father, one of the biggest Christian universities in the world, $2.5 billion worth of property, all kinds of different courses on offer. And Falwell was in charge of the whole thing. Uh, Liberty University says on its website, we produce champions for Christ. And in 2021, Falwell's participation in the whole thing came tumbling down when a, a terrible story about seamy behaviour involving his wife and another guy and financial misdoings and all sorts of things, feathering his own name by stealing from the university, all kinds of things came to light. Now, I've got to say it's alleged because it was never taken to court, but Falwell was terminated and he's discredited and disgraced. He was somebody who seemed to be a Christian leader for years and years, strong supporter of President Trump and one of the evangelicals who came closest to Trump. A man with immense power, and yet somebody who was living life as a hypocrite and a sham. Do people really get convicted? <laughs> That's the question I want to look at tonight. We're going through a whole series of questions that people ask Christians, and this is one of them. Does it really change you? 
I mean, you've got stories both ways, haven't you? You've got the Navalny's, uh, the Chuck Colson's, the C.S. Lewis, who turn right round through 180 degrees and their life is transformed by Jesus Christ, or so it would appear. On the other hand, you have the fakes and the hypocrites. You have those who fall away, those who start out well, and then something happens to them and that's the end of the story. So does conversion really change your life? If anyone is in Christ, says 2 Corinthians 5, it's a new creation. Is that just hype or is it true? That's what we're going to be looking at tonight. Anyway, end of advertising slot. Now on to the programme. It's like ITVX, isn't it? You've got to plough through the adverts before you get to the real stuff. So what were we were talking about last time in this story of Jesus as we trace the life of Jesus through, we're talking about the transfiguration, if you remember. And uh, we talked about three things. First of all, the three disciples that were taken up a hill with Jesus and saw Jesus transformed in glory. And we said, why those, uh, why those three disciples? Well, uh, partly because of their past relationship with Jesus, their Jesus support system, the three of the 12 that were closest to him. But also their present uh, leadership in the group was important. They were emerging as the people who, under Jesus, would structure the other disciples and keep the whole thing going. And also in the future. Jesus knew they were going to be important. So they were given three experiences, at least that we know about, that the rest of the disciples never had because they were important. But they were the most important people there. There were also the two heavenly heroes, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory alongside Jesus. And uh, uh, we said at the time that uh, Moses represents the law and uh, uh, Elijah represents the prophets, the two great uh, movements in the Old Testament that, that, that brought together the story as, as the disciples understood it and created the, the, the message that the Messiah was to come. So you have Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, and Jesus, the Messiah. And then we talked about one transformed teacher. Because the transfiguration was partly for Jesus. It was about what was going to happen to him. It was a strengthening because this is the point at which Jesus gets the message very clearly from his heavenly father, now is the time to head south to Jerusalem. That's why our reading remarks, at the time appointed for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem and nothing could stop him going there because he knew this was the climactic moment of his life coming up. This was a moment he'd looked forward to and dreaded because it was going to take more out of him than anything else that happened in those 33 years on earth. It was going to be absolutely cataclysmic for the future of human history. And he knew it had to happen. Well, we talked last time, too, about uh, uh, A.B. Bruce's uh, uh, treating of the transfiguration in his book, The Training of the Twelve. And he talked about three things that uh, happened to Jesus, three things that God put into being through that transfiguration. And and talk about that this morning, because it was last time's sermon. And if you want it, if you didn't get that, you can find it on the internet site and listen to it there. However... Let's talk, Jesus now realises that he's not got much longer. He has to finish his mission and he has to die on the cross. And it's about this point, as you'll notice in the Gospels, that he starts talking to his disciples seriously about the Son of Man suffering, dying, being dead for three days and then raised to life again. If you had to finish something like that, if you knew that you're at the end of your life, what would be the message that you'd want to leave behind? This is a picture of Diet Eman, who was a, a Dutch girl uh, when Hitler invaded Holland in 1940, I think it was. Well, in 41, anyhow, she had become a part of the resistance. Now, she, she was a Christian, and she wasn't sure how far she should go. She would not involve in 
hostile actions against the German people. She wasn't an assassin or anything like that. But she did try to shelter Jews and help them uh, get to safety. And she's responsible for saving the lives of many, many Jews in the Second World War. She took big chances along with her, her, her boyfriend who became part of the whole operation. And she and he together um, uh, helped to get Jews uh, safe, uh, passage out of Holland, uh, safe places to hide in the countryside. Uh, they're recognised by uh, the Jewish people nowadays as righteous among the Gentiles, people who really helped in the Second World War. But she got arrested. And he got arrested. And he was sent on a, train, uh, on a train to a concentration camp where he knew he would die. On the train, on the way down, he wrote what must be his last letter to Diet. <laughs> and uh, he only had toilet paper to write it on because he went into the, the toilet of the train he was on and got some toilet paper and scribbled a note. And he wrapped it round a stone and threw it out of the window, just hoping that somebody would pick it up and give it to her. And it took till the end of the war, but eventually she got his last message. And what it said was this, Darling, don't count on seeing each other again soon. Dika, which was his pet name for her, even if we won't see each other on earth again, we'll never be sorry for what we did, that we took the stand. And no deed that of every last human being in the world, I loved you the most. <laughs> he only had a few minutes to think about it, but it was the, the last thing he had to say. Now, we're seeing in, in the passage we're talking about this morning and the, the, the section of Jesus' life we're talking about, Jesus putting together his last messages. He's got about six months to go. The way it goes is like this. You remember, you've seen this picture before. We've talked about the three years of Jesus' ministry, the year of obscurity, uh, when he was mainly in the Judean countryside, getting baptised by John the Baptist, and then teaching and, and his disciples baptising too. And then he went up to Galilee, and we don't know quite um, what happened at the start of his ministry, but gradually in the next year, the year of public favour, he became pretty well known. And he went not only to Galilee, but as we saw in, uh, a week away back there, he went up to Tyre and Sidon, he went east to the Decapolis, and he went down to Jerusalem at least once during that period. And now he was becoming big news. But then you reach the year of opposition. And this starts off in Galilee. He goes up to Caesarea Philippi. The transfiguration happens. And he realizes he has to go south to Jerusalem. And then you have the cross and the resurrection. So this is the way it stacks up. The first 30 years of Jesus' life is followed by the year of obscurity, the public favor, the year of opposition. And then you get, uh, uh, sorry, you get the cross and the resurrection at the other end. But we'll get there. So in the year of obscurity, you've got Jesus baptized and tempted. That's what happens, as far as we know, in the first four months. Then eight months in which he's, he's getting his disciples together. He's preaching about baptism. And he's working, basically, in tandem with John the Baptist. Then he goes up to Galilee. And there he begins to preach and to heal. That's for about four months. And in the remaining uh, uh, months of the year, he calls the disciples. He sends them out. Uh, I've got 14 months in that year, but, you know, it's roughly a year. Um, then he travels to Tyre and Sidon at the start of the year of operation. Then Caesarea Philippi, the transfiguration happens. He goes down to Jerusalem. And he spends three months there. And then he goes away from Jerusalem for a bit to Perea. We'll come to that. And for about three months that happens. And he comes back to Jerusalem and the cross and the empty tomb uh, finish the story. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, that was mainly Judea, that was mainly Galilee, that was around Galilee, that's Judea, and then Perea. And uh, this is the bit here that we're looking at, that blue bit. Jesus spends time in Jerusalem, Jesus ministers in Perea. This is the uh, diagram from the 
ESV study Bible that shows the route that Jesus took from Galilee down to Samaria, where he was thrown out by the Samaritans. He wasn't allowed to go through because he was heading for Jerusalem, and they, they wouldn't let him pass through their countryside. So he takes a swerve east into the Decapolis, down through Berea to Judea. And it looks like one line, doesn't it? from the ESV version. It was a bit more complicated than that. There's Galilee, there's Judea, and there's Perea. But what happened was actually not just one journey, it was three journeys. The first bit of it is Galilee down to Judea. Um, he goes down to Judea twice to festivals in Jerusalem, and uh, he doesn't stay there. But he probably works in Perea on the way. And then he goes from Judea back to Perea and uh, then has to be called back to Judea when Lazarus has died. And he doesn't go particularly quickly, if you remember the story, but he ends up back in Judea. And then he goes from Ephraim, which is a little town to the north of Jerusalem, and I'll talk about that in a moment, to Jerusalem. And that's the way the story goes. So he's going round and there are a few loops and things like that. And you might think, this is, this is, how do we put all of this together? And we actually can, not very clearly. Uh, the Gospels say things that we have to fit in together with one another. Why don't we know more? Why doesn't it tell the story chronologically? Well, partly because the Gospel writers aren't trying to do an official biography of Jesus. <laughs> this is not the full story. They're doing different things. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all have their own purposes. Mark was the first story to be written, and he mainly focuses on the Galilean end of things. What Jesus did around Capernaum and those kinds of places. Then the next one... Uh, uh, is John, and John focuses on the other end of things. Uh, the main focus of John is on what Jesus did in Judea and in Jerusalem. So you have to marry those two together. Uh, Matthew uh, has bits of both, but he's arranged it to suit himself. In Matthew, there are five sections based around five great talks that Jesus gave and five bursts of activity. And he brings things together from different phases of Jesus' life in a quite confusing way. So it's all in there, what's in Mark and what's in John, but it's, it's, it's jumbled up. And finally, you've got Luke. And Luke talks about the Perea stuff on the far side of the Jordan, more than any others. But Luke is, is not good at giving you indications of when these things happened or what order they happened in. And so you have to fix all of these things around. But as far as we can work it all out, uh, we've got these three journeys going on. Let's just look at them for a few minutes this morning. First of all, Jesus comes from Galilee and goes down towards Judea. They travel south, and they have to avoid Samaria because the people in this village that he goes to are hostile. You might think, why would they be hostile to Jesus going south when he came through Samaria with no problem just three years before? Do you remember? They, they, they went to Sychar and saw the woman at the well and all that kind of stuff. And they went north through Samaria and that was probably okay. Well, there are two big differences. Number one, on that trip, Jesus only had a few of his disciples, only some of the twelve with him. Not the whole twelve because they weren't all following him yet. But uh, that was quite a small group and they were heading north into Galilee. Now, Jerusalem was the place that the Samaritans hated. So when Jesus was coming south, that was bad news. And this thing, Jesus had quite a lot of people travelling with him. There must have been about 100 to 200 people. Who, and it was, it was quite a movement. And the fact that they wanted to get through Samaria and go to, to Jerusalem clearly worried the Samaritans. And so Jesus had to avoid it. And he goes to the other side of the Jordan. And uh, there he sends 70. 
uh, or 72, if you remember that instalment of the story, who go out and uh, preach his message about the kingdom of God. Jesus realises he's not got much time. He needs other people to, 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 to go out there and spread the news of what he's all about before uh, his, his death comes. And Jesus uh, goes on down to Jerusalem. He goes to two festivals, and John tells us about those to the Feast of Tabernacles. And there he's teaching and healing. And he begins to build a reputation in the South that he's never had before. And people listen to him in Jerusalem and think, this is incredible. Nobody ever spoke like this. Could be this be the Messiah? And Jesus goes later on, about three months later, to a thing called the Feast of Dedication, which is now the festival of Hanukkah, which Jews observe every year. And it's the Feast of the Rededication of the Temple after Jews had taken back the country for themselves. Uh, that was in 146 BC. And uh, so it's not a biblical feast, but it's something that the Jews did every year, and Jesus went down there. Then he goes back across the Jordan, uh, and, and we'll see a bit more about that. What was Jesus talking about then on this trip? What were his famous last words on, in this particular journey? He was telling uh, stories about who he was. He told the story about the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10. And he said, everybody who came before me was a fake and a pale imitation. I'm the Good Shepherd. I give my life for the sheep. You can tell the, 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 the sincerity of somebody by how far he's prepared to go, and I'll give my life for the sheep. He also talked about the woman taken in adultery and said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And nobody would cast a stone at her after that. And uh, he said to her then, I'm not condemning you either. Go. And he was implying that he was without sin. He was forgiving her, he was letting her go, but he was on a different level to everybody else. And then he said something very definite. We talked about this the other week too, didn't we? Before Abraham was, he says to a bunch of hostile critics, I am. And I am is the sacred name of God. So he's saying as clearly as he possibly can, I have an identity which you need to realise or you'll never make sense of what I'm saying to you. And he's talking about who he is. Now, in each of these three journeys, you'll find there are, there are miracles that go on as well. And those miracles tell you a little bit more about what Jesus was teaching at this point. What's the big miracle here? What did he do? Well, it's on chapter 9. And it's a miracle of the man who was born blind. And Jesus heals him. And people say, oh, no, no, this man is a sinner. He can't have done that to you. Yeah, well, the one thing I know is I was once blind. Now I can see. Something's happened to change me. And so this, this bit of Jesus' ministry is talking about opening up people's eyes, helping them realize who he is. And so what we, he meant to say, I think, and what came, comes through all of the teaching of this period is understand the kingdom. God's kingdom is coming. When I die on the cross and when I rise again, that will be the inauguration of a new rule of God in people's hearts. Get ready for it. Understand it. And understand that it all depends on who I am. Nobody else can bring it in. It's got to be me. Like the old hymn says, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Jesus knew that was what his death was going to be about. And so at this phase, as he comes down towards Jerusalem, he's saying, listen, understand what this kingdom is all about. It's not going to be a political kingdom. It's not going to involve rebellion against the Romans. A few years after Jesus' death, somebody tried that. And in the Bar Kokhba rebellion, there was absolute devastation of the country and uh, the temple never rose again. And Jesus said, it's not about politics. It's not about having a king who will push back the Romans. It's about a kingdom of God which is within you, 
which is going to change the world one person at a time. Understand the kingdom. And so the man born blind tells a little bit about what Jesus is saying. Don't be blind to yourself. Realize how helpless you are. You cannot help yourself. You cannot take yourself into the kingdom. You cannot build the kingdom by human means, by determination, by skill, by wisdom. You've just got to depend desperately on the person who's the heart of the whole thing, Jesus himself. Don't be blind to God. Realize how much he loves you. And it's at this point that Jesus is telling some stories about the good shepherd loving the sheep, giving his life for the sheep. And saying, this is what my father feels about you people. He talks about Jerusalem and says, how often I'd have, I've gathered you as a hen gathers a chicken under her wings, but you would not. Don't be blind to God. He loves you more than you can possibly know. And don't be blind finally to Jesus. Jesus, the one who's come in the name of God to make all of this happen. Understand who he truly is or the whole thing will never make any sense to you. So that's that phase. But there's a second phase as well. Uh, Jesus goes from Judea back across the Jordan into this place, Perea, on the eastern bank of the Jordan. What's he doing at this point? Well, for one thing, he's telling lots of stories. And get them in Luke. All of the great parables that people remember come from this period. Some tremendous stories. He was always a brilliant storyteller. And this phase of his life, when he's on, on ground that he's not been on before, a country that's partly Gentile, mainly Jewish, a place where people don't really understand him, he tells all these stories to make it absolutely clear, because he hasn't got long, what he is about. And the opposition, which started in, in, in Jerusalem, uh, continues. The people in Jerusalem responded to Jesus, but the rulers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they felt threatened by it. And they followed up to Perea and started following him around and questioning him and trying to make him look stupid. Jesus especially got up their nose by healing people on the Sabbath. There are at least two healings on the Sabbath that happen in this period. And as if he's, he's challenging the very framework of Jewish law, the way in which things have always been done, because he wants to say, what is important? What is God saying through the Sabbath law and the Old Testament and everything else? This is being fulfilled now. It's not a case of uh, being, being heartless to people who are in need. It's a case of God pouring out his mercy and going beyond what you expect. And if it happens on the Sabbath day, that's incidental. The Pharisees are criticized. He starts talking more openly about how narrow Jewish official religion is and how people need to, to understand that there's more to God's plans and purposes than they in the Old Testament. And the climax of this whole period, I suppose, is when Lazarus is raised from the grave. Jesus goes to Bethany, crosses the Jordan again, and goes to where Lazarus is lying dead in the tomb, and he doesn't hurry. In fact, when he comes, uh, Martha says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my, 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 Mark Mary says, my, my brother uh, wouldn't have died, because she really believes that Jesus, if he were on the spot, would be able to do something about it. And Jesus shows that his power extends beyond the grave. It's not just a case of catching him before he dies. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. And people see that the most amazing miracle they've ever seen in their lives. So, during this phase, what was Jesus doing? What was he saying? Well, you get the great parables, as I said. First of all, the parable of the Great Supper. The idea that God is inviting people to a feast. And some people will miss out. Because although they are friends of the guy who's giving the feast... They find all sorts of excuses for not turning up. They don't really want to be part of it. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's like for a lot of people who are officially religious. 
They miss out on God's purposes. And God invites in the halt and the lame and the blind and the people who are sleeping in the hedgerows. People you never expect to see in heaven. And God wants people to come to his feast. Michael Sayward, the uh, Anglican uh, cleric of uh, a few years ago, once wrote a book called Don't Miss the Party, <laughs> an evangelistic paperback. And uh, the Great Supper, the lost sheep, the idea that the shepherd will go out into the wilderness, even if 90 and 9 are safe in the sheepfold, just to get that one person, that one sheep, because he loves it so much. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the idea that Lazarus, who has a terrible life on earth, is welcomed into Abraham's bosom, whereas the rich man who thought he was doing fine is not. All of that's saying something important. And what Jesus did is important. What's the great miracle of this stage? Obviously, restoring Lazarus to life. And through that miracle, Jesus is saying, I have power beyond the grave. My power is infinite. I can reach any need you have. And what he's saying here is enter the kingdom. Make sure you're part of it. Don't miss the party. Step into God's purposes for you. And make sure that at the centre of your life, because God can be missed out on if you're not careful. And he tells in this, this phase as well, that other great story about the prodigal son. And he's saying basically to people, coming back home is a choice. You don't have to remain away from God because God wants to welcome you back. He loves you so much. But you have to choose to come back. You can miss the party if you want. You can leave the sheepfold and wander off into the wilderness. You can squander your inheritance on riotous living. And until you turn around and say, no, I'm going back home. I'm going to cast myself on my father's mercy. You're going nowhere. So Jesus says, don't just know about the kingdom. Don't just have it clear in your head. But take that step you need to take so you're actually in there. Accept what God is offering you. Just take it with both hands. And then, that's many people, he says, don't do that. Deet Eman, this is her at the end of her life. <laughs> she ended up in America. She became an American citizen, actually, in the 1990s. And she carried on until she was nearly 100, involved in involving herself in all sorts of uh, mission enterprises and uh, Bible studies to help friends who weren't Christians because she just had a, a, a tremendous longing to see herself used by God to change the world as part of the kingdom. And uh, she looks back on the wartime years and the way that she was up against people who often thought of themselves as religious, good, upstanding Nazi party members who thought they had it all sorted out but nonetheless were missing the kingdom because what they were doing was inhuman and wrong and they were building their own little kingdom and they were secure in their arrogance and pride and never really saw what Jesus was calling his people to. And she said, the greatest miracle was that in the end, I could actually feel pity for those men because they were so deluded. They thought they had power and really they had nothing. I'll never forget it. And from that moment on, I've never really hated anymore. It all turned around when I sat there thinking what poor, empty souls they were. And if you know about the kingdom, but you don't enter it, if you don't live out its values, you are missing uh, the... Uh, greatest experience in life. Okay, we've got one more stage to talk about, and this is Ephraim to Jerusalem. You might say, well, what's going on with Ephraim? Well, after uh, the healing of Lazarus, Jesus knows that there are plots rising against him. They sought to kill him because he was just becoming too popular. And so he goes north to a place called Ephraim. 
And uh, this is where we don't know how to fit everything quite to the story, but perhaps he makes a last trip north, because there are some things he's done in Galilee that don't seem to fit anywhere else, and uh, he finishes off what he was doing in Perea. And we don't know from Luke which bits come from the first visit to Perea and which come from the second. All very complicated. But anyway, that's what happens. And he comes back to Jerusalem via Jericho. And there on the way to Jericho, he meets Zacchaeus, which is what this picture is about. And Zacchaeus is challenged to come down from his tree. And his life is changed and turned upside down as a result. All of the things he's valued, making money, finding status, that just disappears. And Zacchaeus just wants to follow Jesus with everything he's got. And Jesus comes back to Bethany, knowing that that's going to lead to his death. So, where's Ephraim? Well, they, basically, there it is on, on the map. You might see it just uh, uh, north of Bethany. And Jesus travels from Bethany, not back into Jerusalem, because that's where his, his enemies are waiting for him. He goes up to this village called Ephraim, which is on the edge of Samaria. And it's possible that he goes north again through Samaria, into Galilee, and then down through Perea, and then from Perea he returns to Jericho, and from Jericho to Jerusalem. What was he doing, finally, in this stage? Well, what he said first, he tells the story of the two men in the temple. The Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not as other men are. And the publican who says, Lord, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And he contrasts the two. He has a day when uh, he's approached by women with their children. And the disciples say, go away, go away, he's very busy. And he says, suffer the little children to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples say, what is this? We thought this religion was for serious people, men. Now he's talking to kids and their mums. It's like he's running a family group. What's going on here? And he also, he sees the rich young ruler at this point. And the rich young ruler wants to follow him. And Jesus says, okay, if you want to follow me, your lifestyle has to be radically altered. Your money is chaining you down. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And he's not up for the challenge. So all of these things, forcing people to make a decision about their lifestyle. And what Jesus does, the stories he tells, the things he does uh, in this period, and I know we're racing through a lot of Bible material here, what it's all doing is saying, listen, if you come into the kingdom, there are values. There are standards, and they're not the standards of the world. This kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, to quote the title of another Christian paperback on the subject. It's, it's a, a kingdom that reverses the values of the world. What was the great miracle? Well, there were two as he passed through Jericho, weren't there? Bartimaeus got his light back. Zacchaeus got his life changed. And as Zacchaeus comes down from the tree where he's hidden himself in isolation by other people, he says, Lord... If I've stolen anything from people, I'm going to give back more than I took. I'm going to live for you now and not for wealth. And guess what happens? He has a party. And the one who was isolated up in the branches of a tree becomes the centre of a growing movement of love and fellowship. And Jesus uh, is saying through all of this, listen, that's what the kingdom is about. Live the kingdom. It's not enough just to know about it. It's not enough even just to enter into it. Once you're in there, you live by new rules. You follow me. You do what I say. Living the kingdom means living for Jesus in trust and radical faith. It means living for others as well in love and mercy. Orienting your life towards serving others rather than serving yourself. And it means living for God's future in every choice you make. The kingdom is coming. 
If you're a member of that kingdom already, the fifth column is simply working in the world to change everything, then you look forward to that kingdom coming and you live your life in the light of that. Here's one of my heroines, Sophie Scholl. This is another Nazi story. I'm sorry the Germans are coming this morning, but she was German and she was great. Uh, every time I go to Munich, and that's about twice a year, I try to get to the Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich because there is a hall there that's atmospheric. It's called the Lichthalle because the light comes in from funny angles. It's a big uh, hall where people graduated or lecture rooms off to either side. And that is where Sophie Shaw and her, brothers, her brother and the others were arrested. You see, Sophie was, was a girl who uh, felt very strongly that the Nazis were wrong, that Germany was losing the plot. And she felt that partly because she was a Christian. And so she became a part of the Weisse Rose movement, the White Rose movement, started by her brother. And all they tried to do was to distribute leaflets secretly that put the other case and said, listen, what's Hitler leading us into? This is all completely wrong. And one day, I can't tell you the whole story this morning, but uh, it's a great story. She was arrested and with her brother as she put leaflets down uh, in the Lichthalle outside doors of lecture rooms because lectures were just about to finish and they were going to, to rush away. But there were one or two leaflets left and she put them on the edge of a, 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 a balcony and they fell over. And the caretaker heard the noise and looked up and saw what they were doing. He was a fervent Nazi, was until he died, but that's another story. And he, he locked the doors of the Lichthalle immediately and they were caught. And four days later, four days later, without her parents even being notified, they found out through somebody else, she was hustled through a trial and guillotined. And that was not a nice way to die. They guillotined you with chicken wire, but oof, anyway. And she went to her death in one of the most courageous ways you could possibly imagine. She said this, I will cling to the rope God has thrown me in Jesus Christ, even when my numb hands can no longer feel it. It all depends on him, not me. I'm part of his kingdom, and so I will live for him in dependence on him. Only he can pull me through. And she said, if Christ hadn't lived and hadn't died, there would truly be no way out at all. Then all the weeping of the Second World War would be horribly meaningless. Then we'll have to run against a wall and smash one's skull. But as it is, no. And just before they led her away to death, she was incredibly calm. She said this, I know that life is a doorway to eternity. And yet my heart so often gets lost in petty anxieties. It forgets the great way home that lies before it. She was only 21. <laughs> and Sophie Scholl had got hold of something that most of Jesus' opponents never saw. The fact that the way to real life is through dying to yourself and living for somebody else by entering that kingdom and living its values, by understanding that he's at the heart of it, he's the center of it, and if he hadn't lived and died, there'd be no point in any of it. And resolving to let him have the rest of your life to do with it what he wants. We're going to sing our last hymn.